This Janet Meffer Today archived broadcast is brought to you by Heart for Lebanon. We're trying to provide 100 refugee families with emergency supplies and the gospel during this urgent time of crisis. Your gift of $116 will help two families. Please help today by calling 888-247-5499. That's 888-247-5499. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it! And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Thanks so much for joining us again. In Matthew 24, the Lord Jesus tells us, all the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heavens to the other. Now we know that we are in the last days and that the Lord could return at any time. But the details about eschatology are sometimes not only confusing, like when you go to Daniel or you go to Revelation, for example, but they're also hotly debated. What are some key points we need to understand about what is ahead for us eschatologically? We're going to talk about it today with William Bookestein, who is pastor of Emanuel Fellowship Church in Kalamazoo, Michigan, and author of the book, The Future of Everything, Essential Truths About the End Times. It's great to have you here. William, how are you? I'm well, Janet. Thanks for having me. Great to talk to you again. You talk about eschatology. I thought this was a really interesting quote from your intro. You said you, eschatology is introducing us to a world of comfort. I thought I've never heard it put like that before, but that's really true. Can you expound on that a little bit? Yeah, we, we need to know, uh, as God's people, what our future holds. Um, actually, right before you called, I was working on a funeral sermon for a man in our church who died last week after a lifetime of, of debilitating seizures. Mm-hmm. Um, he was a wonderful man, but looking at his life, someone might wonder whether God had been terribly unkind to him. And we might wonder that about ourselves sometimes. Um, has this life been uh, sort of a, a cruel joke? But questions like that can only be answered in the light of eternity. Right. And so this is why we need to know what God has said about the life to come so that the scales of temporary suffering can be overwhelmed by uh, Jesus' future glory. And, and that's where we get comfort, because we all need it, and it only comes uh, through what God provides, not through our, our, our vain speculations. That's so true. And yet, sometimes a lot of us will avoid the subject of eschatology because it is so complicated, and there's so many different opinions out there. Why do you think we should avoid avoiding it, as you say? Yeah, yeah. well, because it's, it's part of God's revelation. I mean, Scripture is a revelation. It's meant to reveal God's plan for us. Um, so yeah, some of, us, some of us have been burned by controversies over the end times. We've felt excluded by certain people because our view of the end doesn't fit, fit theirs. Um, but we can't, we can't quit trying to understand what God says. Um, we, we can't, uh, if, if we don't engage Scripture on the end times, then what we're left with is sort of pasting together scraps of ideas that fit with what we want to think about God yeah. and the eternal destiny of, of, other, of, of all people. And Job talked about these kinds of thoughts as, as empty nothings, hmm. um, and they just won't do uh, when it comes to what, what, you know, processing what really is going to happen one day. So we, yeah. we have to engage what God says. We do. So if I sat down with my Bible for the first time and I was trying to understand the end times, where would you send me first to try to understand the end of all things and the different passages that might be appropriate and important for me to study? Well, this is uh, 
probably what I would do, Janet, is I would, I would actually have you start at the beginning of the Bible. Um, it'd be a long read, of course. But, <laughs> of course. <laughs> um, the, the end times really uh, answers questions that are raised by the very ver- first verse of the Bible. You know, God is creating this heaven and the earth, this heaven and earth, and that, that begs the question, why? Mm-hmm. Uh, what, is he, what is going to happen to this, this world? Um, what's going to happen to the people that he's made? What is their destiny? So I, I think that eschatology, as someone has said, really answers questions that the entire Bible uh, asks for us. So, so you have to read the Bible as a total story, so I would say start at the beginning, but then, of course, the prophets uh, begin to inform our understanding of the end, giving us um, really, really f- focusing their attention on Jesus, not only his first coming, but also his second coming. Um, Jesus himself teaches an awful lot about the end times. He teaches about heaven. He teaches a lot about hell. So you'd, you'd turn to the Gospels. You'd turn to Mark chapter 13. You'd turn to, as you mentioned earlier, Matthew 24, Matthew 25, um, and then you'd, you'd turn to Revelation as well, not, not so much as, as a roadmap, you know, in, in sort of a detailed chronological way uh, of, of previewing the end times, but as, as a as sort of a composite sketch of God's victory uh, at the last day. Well, now this is interesting. I think you're absolutely right. Starting in Genesis is important because we have to go to the very beginning. Why did God create the heavens and the earth and what will happen at the end? Makes total sense. What happens though when you come to books like Ezekiel and Daniel? Because those have some prophetic passages that Christians can find very confusing. What do you do with those passages, for example, like with Daniel and the 70 weeks and the interpretation? How would you approach Bible study in that regard? Yeah, great, great question. Um, I would first encourage uh, God's people to um, to not get lost in the details. I'm not dismissing, of course, the the importance of every portion of God's word. Um, but but when we can't always know exactly what a biblical author means by every phrase or every number, um, we need to step back a little bit and try to understand the bigger picture. You know, what is what are the authors doing? Um, when they, like when Ezekiel, for example, paints this picture of, of a restored temple. Um, well, at least we can say that uh, the temple was an image of God coming to be among his people. And so at least what we can say is that Ezekiel sees in the future a time when God is coming back to be with his people, and that's meant to be amazingly comforting. So I would say, you know, this is one of the reasons we have to be careful uh, about sort of an argumentative eschatology. Hmm. Not to say that the details, that we shouldn't wrestle hard over them, but we need to make sure that we understand the, the, the comforting aspect of what the prophets are saying, even in the, even in the difficult statements, so that we don't get, so we don't get lost. Um, in, in those details. Right, that's right. So when you get to the Olivet Discourse, which I mentioned at the outside of the interview, this is a very significant passage. Obviously, it's Jesus himself outlining what is to come. There are some things in there that are a little confusing for us. But what would you extrapolate out of that passage in particular that is important for us to know about eschatology? Okay, great question. The um, Jesus himself gives a key to interpreting that passage, uh, not only in Matthew chapter 24, but also in Mark chapter 13. And his, his key application um, is really summed up in a single word, and the word is watch. Watch. Not, not, you know, not like stare up into the skies waiting for Jesus to come back on the clouds, but watch your life. Prepare 
to, to be a profitable servant, unlike those in Matthew 25, who Jesus calls unprofitable servants. They didn't take seriously the fact that the king who has gone away into a far country is returning one day. Hmm. So um, the, the, the main key in Jesus' mind is to be watchful, to, uh, to be prepared, um, to bear fruits that are worthy of repentance in light of the coming of Jesus. Well, right. Yeah, that, that is interesting to say, watch, because no man knows the day or the hour that Christ will return. So that is a fundamental part of what we need to be doing in the Christian life is paying attention to the signs, but being ready at any time, because we never know when the Lord will eventually return. That's right. We're, we're, we're all going to be doing something when Christ returns, um, if, if we're still living. And um, of course, when, when God returns, you might say, to call us even through death, we're all going to be found doing something. And so that's why it's, it's, it's best to, to think about, um, uh, you know, doing the Lord's will uh, in our thoughts, in our words, in our actions, uh, because the return of Christ is imminent, as you said. Yeah, it is. It is. When you talk about personal eschatology, William, what are you really getting at on this idea that we're all going to die and, and there is going to be a period between death and the end? Yeah, so theologians usually divide the study of eschatology uh, into two parts, personal eschatology and general eschatology. Personal eschatology um, is, is really, as the title suggests, asking the question, what, what's going to happen to me? What, is, what, is, uh, what do I need to know about my end? And, um, and so the first part is, you know, unless Christ comes back first, we're all going to die. So we need to be preparing for our death. Um, and, and the Bible actually says a fair bit about what happens to people after they die. And, and essentially what the Bible says is that death introduces a period of anticipation. Well, I'll tell you what. Anticipation for God's people, dreadful anticipation for his enemies. Very good. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back with William Buckestein talking about his book called The Future of Everything. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. Back in a moment. What's it like when a pregnant mom sees her baby for the first time? It all came down to the ultrasound. And I saw this little lima bean looking thing with a halo, which I thought was incredible. A baby wasn't really in the plan for this young mom. After seeing a halo on her baby on ultrasound at a preborn center, she was still leaning towards abortion. And I got to hear the heartbeat and I got chills. In that moment, I just felt God's arms come around me and hug me and tell me that it was going to be okay. Preborn is the largest provider of free ultrasounds in the country. Ultrasounds save lives. Would you join with Preborn in helping moms to choose life? To donate, just call 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229. All gifts are tax deductible. That's 855-402-2229. Or there's a Preborn banner to click at JanetMefford.com. Are you in need of a health care program? You're in luck. As a member of Liberty HealthShare, you're part of a community that comes together to share their medical expenses. 
bonuses. You can sign up throughout the year with memberships starting as early as the following month. And there are no contracts or commitments. Programs start as low as $349 per month. And there's no network, so you can choose your own doctors and hospitals. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, not insurance. So your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you, too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals who understand the importance of people coming together to bear one another's burdens. Find out more at libertyhealthshare.org slash jmt. That's libertyhealthshare.org slash jmt. Or call now, 855-565-2561. 855-565-2561. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. We are back on Janet Mefford today. My guest is Pastor William Bookestein. His book is called The Future of Everything, Essential Truths About the End Times. We're talking about some of these key passages and the importance of eschatology. This is really significant when you say, William, as we were discussing before the break, we're all going to die. And in some regard, we have to talk about the subject of anticipation. Now, getting into the details a little bit, when we talk about general eschatology, again, we know that the Lord will return. We all confess this as the Church of Jesus Christ, that the Lord will return. But certainly there are disagreements over how that will occur. What do you focus on when you really get into the details on the Lord's return? What are some of the important themes and the important doctrines that we get from Scripture that tell us more about that? Well, I think the most basic thing that we have to confess, that we, do, that we do and historically have confessed about the return of Christ, is, is that it's a literal event. Um, you know, people have, have twisted the teaching of Scripture to say that Jesus' return is like, um, it's, it's an allegory, that, you know, that we're going to come to better understand Jesus one day, or right. that the <laughs> principles of Jesus are going to come to bear more powerfully in the world uh, as time goes on. But we're actually confessing that Jesus is going to come in the flesh, in person, in glory and power, mm-hmm. and to summon every person who's ever lived to stand before his throne and to be judged, as the Bible says, for everything that we've done in the body, whether good or evil. So mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a literal event, and we, we have to be certain uh, to maintain the, the reality of the of the return of Jesus. Well, that's really important. I, I mean, I don't hear a lot of people these days saying that his return is figurative. Do you hear a lot of that these days from people who say, well, it's not really going to be a literal return of Jesus Christ. He's not really going to come back. Yeah. You know, it's I, that's certainly present in a, in a, in a more liberal uh, component of, of, of the Church today. But I think probably you're right, probably the most... Um, the, the, one of the biggest problems about the return is that it's it's just dismissed. It's not it's not something that we think about that we that we that we're uh, conscious of. Um, and you know the fact that Jesus also is coming in judgment that's viewed somewhat negatively by a lot of people today. Judgment seems very unwelcome. Uh, the whole concept seems unwelcome. Uh, we want to believe and behave without censure, without consequence. Um, un, un, until we need our day in court, right? And then, right. We, and then, we're, and then we welcome judgment. And so we need, to, we need to affirm that Jesus is coming to render judgment, that he has the authority to do so, and that for those who 
uh, have submitted to him, that judgment is actually very welcome, very desirable. Yeah, that's that's good. Now, I want to go to one particular passage, William, because I want to get your take on this. We have that section of Scripture where it says that the coming of the Son of Man, two men will be in the field, one will be taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding with a handmill, one will be taken, and the other left. This has historically, by dispensationalists at least, been used as a passage to talk about the rapture. How do you see that passage? Would you think about the rapture as being something where the church is suddenly removed and then Jesus comes back later, or how should we understand that particular passage there? Well, I would—one uh, of the keys of interpreting Scripture uh, is, to, is to compare Scripture with Scripture, and um, one, of the, one of the pictures that we have in Scripture is not of sort of a secret uh, return of Jesus Christ. So you take, for example, in, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, um, where we read that the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, yes. with the voice of an archangel, the trumpet of God. Um, that's not a very suitable picture for a, for a secret rapture. And so um, I, I would look at that text that you, that you mentioned earlier and, and, and say what Jesus is doing is he's making, um, he's making sort of the final judgment extremely graphic. We got two people who've lived together, who've worked together side by side, or maybe in the same home together. Um, yeah, one has prepared for eternity, the other hasn't. Mm-hmm. One's going to be taken, the other's going to be left outside. Um, as Jesus describes, uh, one of the one of sort of the, the senses that we have of hell is that it's a place that's outside, outside of God's uh, goodness and kindness and grace, and it's it's a it's meant to be, I think, a very jarring image yeah. uh, to not be left behind yeah. um, of God's grace. Very interesting. How about the millennium? We have different views in the church on, you know, post-mill, pre-mill, how we should see Revelation 20 and the thousand-year reign. How would you come down on the millennium and why? Well, I, I think what, what happens uh, sometimes is that uh, people look at Revelation um, very uh, sincerely and uh, expect that Revelation is is sort of a chronology, um, like a story of the of the ending of the universe. Um, I think what we see instead, and this has been documented well by authors like William Hendrickson and others, um, what we have in Revelation is is a series of 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 m- m- like movie clips, as he calls it, or images of the end that sort of keep going back to the beginning and, and starting over from, a, from another angle. So I think any attempt to try to piece together a timeline um, that would include a, you know, a, a literal thousand-year reign is troubled from the start in the sense that that's, I don't think how Revelation is meant to be read um, as a timeline. I think the other thing that we see in, in terms of the millennium, um, if, if you look at uh, Revelation chapter 20, is um, some of the the language that John uses there um, is consistent with language that, that Jesus uses in his earthly ministry. So the fact of Satan being bound, you know, is that, is that something that's going to happen in a thousand-year yeah. future period? Or is it more like what Jesus said, you know, I saw, I saw Satan falling from heaven. Hmm. You know, it, it, Satan, it seems, according to Jesus, is presently bound. Um, just think about the the hold, the stranglehold that Satan had on the world prior to the coming of Christ, the, the, the ministry and the, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It seemed almost complete. Um, well, now 
you know, millions of people have come to faith in Jesus Christ. Satan is no longer, uh, we can't see him as, as the, um, the, 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 with the same degree of power that he had prior to the coming of Jesus Christ. So I, I think there are uh, enough trouble, uh, trouble points with, um, with uh, uh, seeing sort of an earthly millennium as to see it rather as this period that, is, uh, that goes from Jesus' first coming to his second coming. Jesus Christ is presently reigning. Satan's territories are uh, being won back by, by the king, and um, uh, the gospel's going forward, yeah. uh, and that's happening right now. Yeah. What about the resurrection, the final resurrection of the dead, where Jesus refers to that in John 5 and elsewhere? We know that when we die, we are separated from our bodies, but at the end, there will be a resurrection, and those who are Christians will be resurrected unto eternal life and get their bodies back, that sort of thing. But how do you see that as coming to pass when you look at the Bible? Yeah. Well, I, let me let me just back up a little bit and say that um, this is something I think that Christians need to recover in terms of being the centerpiece of of the Christian hope. Yes, um, I agree. We we too often think about heaven as uh, as really sort of an unreal place, uh, sort of a cloudy, um, ethereal. We have these these notions of heaven that don't don't correspond to reality, um, and and so therefore aren't very appealing to us, and so. What, what the, pro- the promise of the gospel, as, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, is to be reclothed. Um, we, we need to be reclothed with new bodies. Um, uh, I mentioned in the book, we have, some of us have a hard time looking in the mirror uh, at our own bodies. Um, how yeah. will we in our bodies look on God uh, unless we've been reclothed? And reclothed in his in his glory and majesty, and so I think this this uh, this promise of new bodies that correspond to a new heaven and a new earth brought together, uh, we we've simply got to recover that as as being the centerpiece of the Christian hope. Um, what Paul says about the new bodies is vital in First Corinthians 15. He basically says, if I could summarize, that our bodies in the in the new heavens and the new earth will be will have consistency with our previous bodies. We'll know each other. Hmm. Um, we'll be fully human, more fully human than we've ever been. But our bodies will be uh, will, will operate, you might say, on a, on a different plane, sort of like the body of Jesus operated on a different plane after the resurrection. And that's something to be very, very excited about. Yeah, why Why do you think there is not more emphasis on the final resurrection? Because you're right, that that is what is really exciting about it. We, we sometimes think more in a Gnostic sort of way that, well, there's yeah. my body and then there's my soul. It's like, but but the Lord emphasized you're going to get your body back at the resurrection. Yeah. This is something that is of supreme significance. Yeah, well, I think part of it is for many of us, at least many Western Christians, um, our bodies are pretty good right now. Yeah, um, true. We, you know, when I when I think about my friend Danny, who we, you know, uh, hope to memorialize this weekend, um, he had a very hard life with a very difficult body, and so you look at a person like that, and, and resurrection for him was just absolutely like there was no thought of of uh, you know a whole Danny apart from a resurrection, and I think hmm. probably Christians who struggle in their bodies do think about the resurrection more than many of us do because. You know, in, in this day and age, we can we can take pretty good care of our bodies. We don't think about how they need to be restored and renewed. Right. Well, and it seems the end of the emphasis on eschatology is hope. 
I mean, that's really the biggest takeaway. No matter how bad your life is here on earth, if you are in Jesus Christ, you have a future hope and it's absolutely sure it can't be moved. I mean, that is the best. It makes every day, even if it's a horrible day, it makes every day great because you know how the story ends. Yeah. Yeah. We have a temporary, uh, a temporary suffering right now and, and understanding that we with Jesus can look with joy uh, to the hope, that, to, to the future that's set before us, that hopefulness, um, it allows us to be faithful for one more day, and then one more day, and then one more day, and then eventually we'll, we'll see the face of Jesus, and it will all have been worth it. Oh, I can't wait. William Bookestein, the name of the book, The Future of Everything. William, always good to talk to you. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Janet. All right. God bless you. We'll be back on Janet Mefford today after this. This Janet Mefford Today archived broadcast is brought to you by Heart for Lebanon. We're trying to provide 100 refugee families with emergency supplies and the gospel during this urgent time of crisis. Your gift of $116 will help two families. Please help today by calling 888-247-5499. That's 888-247-5499. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. And now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. Welcome back to Janet Mefford Today. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. The words of the Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 16, laying out for us exactly what we need to do in order to be his disciples. But of course, once you become a Christian, the road of discipleship can be fraught with difficulties and trials. That's just the way it is in the Christian life. So how can we maintain a steady course by God's grace and follow Jesus for the rest of our lives? Joining me now is Pastor Andrew Randall. He serves as pastor of Grace Church Larbert, which is a congregation of the International Presbyterian Church in central Scotland. And we'll be talking about his book called Following Jesus, The Essentials of Christian Discipleship. Pastor Randall, it's wonderful to have you with us. Thank you so much. Thanks thanks for having me. Yes, well, you say that this book is about going back to the basics of discipleship and heeding Jesus' call to follow him. What do you think it is, as far as the basics of discipleship, what are those basics, would you say? The, the main issue is, is as a, what the book sets out to, to establish is that the, the basics are the essentials, and, and the, the core thing in the Christian life is not about, in a sense, not about anything spectacular, um, but is about getting the basics right and getting to grips with uh, the basic things. And I think the, the, the main things would be what, what we might call the ordinary means of grace. Yes. So uh, God has given us uh, ways of um, growing in our faith, of following him day by day. He's given to us uh, a huge amount. Um, and what we often find is that Christians go looking for more um, and, and don't take full advantage of what we have. So this, this, the book focuses on things like the place of the Bible in our lives, the place of the church, the place of prayer and of the Holy Spirit, um, how we grow in our faith, how, we, how we're guided and so on. Yes, which is absolutely essential. And I liked what you said there, that sometimes Christians get caught up in the idea that I need more than the basics. Why do we go in that direction where we think that all that God has already told us we need is not enough? Why do we think that way sometimes? It's a strange psychology, isn't it? But yeah. uh, it just seems to be something in, in human nature. And um, uh, Yeah, I mean, this, 
this is a, this is a you know it's a book for very much a book for ordinary mortals about the ordinary Christian life, <laughs> and oh, sometimes you read things uh, or hear or hear a certain kind of preaching, and it's about it's all about how absolutely extraordinary and amazing and extreme everything is. And to be honest, I get exhausted just listening to it. Never mind <laughs> trying to live it. And, and I think I think we need a bit of realism about the fact that the ordinary Christian life is is lived out day by day amidst all the challenges of um, work and bringing up the kids and um, putting the bins out to get collected and, and all the things that need to happen in daily life. Yes. Um, and, and, and we just need to keep grounding ourselves. I, I guess it's human nature that we, that the, what is more spectacular is more appealing to us. Um, but the key to the, to the Christian life is really to get the, the ordinary pattern of our, of our growth and our discipleship um, on course, and, and if we could do that um, and just have have a steady course, what um, Eugene Peterson called a long obedience in the same direction, yes. um, then then we'd go a long way towards um, avoiding many of the problems I think that we sometimes have. Oh, it certainly would, because the Christian life is a marathon, and it's definitely not a sprint. And yeah. if, you th- if you're going to live your Christian life by you know momentous events, you're going to crash and burn pretty quickly because. Exactly. That- that's not what you're in for. What would you say to a new Christian who says, all right, I've placed my faith in Jesus Christ. I've repented of my sins. I've been born again by the Spirit of God. But I know Jesus says that I have to deny myself and take up my cross and follow me. What would you say to the new Christian by way of explaining what that actually means? If, if someone said, I don't really get it. What do you mean? What does Jesus mean when he says I need to deny myself, take up my cross and follow him? How do I do that when I can't see him? What, what is that all about? Sure. Um, yeah, I, I think I think there's a huge issue about the um, the whole dynamic of the Christian life and how we how we live it. Um, so, so in in that particular call, I, I think we have to. It's part of many paradoxes in the gospel, isn't it, that we have to embrace. Yes. Um, and and we have to. In, in many ways, we have to trust. We have to trust Jesus that um, when he tells us that the way of sacrifice is the way of fulfillment and of joy, that he's being truthful with us. Um, and I think that's what it comes down to. In a sense, it's about um, us, us handing over control, giving up um, control, and, and being willing to, um, well, what Paul says in Romans 12, um, offer up our bodies as living sacrifices. Um, and, and once you look at that theme in the scriptures, you find that it's absolutely everywhere, that the key to... Um, success, for want of a better word, in the Christian life is, is in a way, failure. Um, that, that everything is inverted, um, that that's, that's, that's the call, and that we need to trust that, that that call will be to our blessing. Yeah, that's right. Well, paradox, like, whoever wants to be the greatest in the kingdom of God must be yeah. the servant. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there are a lot of those expressions in the Bible, and that's an important thing for people to grasp right from the get-go when you become a Christian. So let's talk about following Jesus by the book, as you say. We have to ground our faith in Jesus in his word. Where would you begin in that quest? Clearly, you need to read the Bible, study the Bible, memorize the Bible. But what part of anchoring your faith in Jesus uh, is necessary when you have the Word of God in front of you? What would you advise Christians to do uh, to live for Jesus by the book? I think um, it's really just a case of trying to 
in seeking to internalize, seeking to take full advantage of what God has given to us. So I think it was Bunyan, wasn't it, that the, the famous comment about him was that his blood was bibline. If you mm. if you pricked him, the Bible would come out. Mm-hmm. Um, and you see that in the way that he writes, and you see it in the way that he lives. So, so speaking there about um, taking up our cross and following him, the, the suffering that Bunyan willingly endured um, was was very extreme, but he was able to do it because he had the Word of God stored up in his heart. Yes. And so I think for for the young Christian, it's, it's very easy to um, to be drawn away by the bright lights of more spectacular things. When actually we we believe as Reformed Christians that um, that the Scriptures are sufficient. Um, and that God has given us here all that we need for life and godliness. That's right. Um, and so it's really a case of trying to do everything that we can to just fill our lives and our minds with the Bible. We need, we need to be honest enough to recognize that as we've lived apart from God, we have a mind that has been shaped by the world and that has been hugely shaped just by sin, um, and therefore, it's the, it's the Bible, it's the Word of God that, that reshapes us, that renews us um, from within and transforms our minds um, and helps us to, uh, to, to adjust to uh, a godly way of life and to love, to love godliness and to love holiness. We need to learn that, um, and the Word does that. Um, and so, the, in practical terms, it's a case of getting that Word into you by whatever means possible. Um, so that would include daily you know daily bible reading regular bible reading um it would include it's important to not to separate that off from church because actually the uh, our place in church and the preaching of the word yes. um is enormously significant um it's not an individual uh, just jesus and me experience yes um we we read the bible as groups of people we read the bible as the church and fellowship with others um both now and throughout the ages which is why um, church history matters and old writings matter. Um, so I think I think yeah these these kind of main ways of of uh, getting the Bible into us and shaping our thinking and our our minds uh, our worldview more and more by Scripture. Yeah, and one of the things that really strikes me is a lot of people who are very concerned about the Word of God and and knowing doctrine sometimes can err in the, I think it's a little bit of an error to think, well, I'll just read my theology book. I'll read my systematic theology today. I'll read my confessions, all of which is great. But it seems if we're moving away from the Word of God to any extent, then we need to go back in the direction of the Bible. That's the main book we ought to be reading and studying. Absolutely. Other Other things can be very useful. Um, but it's a strange thing, and I think it's a, I think it's a, a clear indication of a of a spiritual reality. It's a strange phenomenon how Christian books are easier to read than the Bible, hmm. um, and and it's easy even for Christian books to become a replacement. And 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 uh, uh, yeah, we need to make sure that we're we're giving time to to God's word itself. Other other things have their place, but only a secondary place. Amen. Well, we're going to take a short break. We'll be back with Pastor Andrew Randall. His book is called Following Jesus. We're going to talk more about this issue of the church in the Christian life. We'll be back on Janet Meffer today after this.
Gofran and Khaled, two little boys from Syria, were orphaned four years ago. But when they came to Lebanon with their aunt as refugees, Heart for Lebanon was waiting for them. Heart for Lebanon was there to provide Christian education, emergency supplies, and the hope of the gospel to these two boys. Now they listen attentively to the Bible stories they're hearing and are memorizing Bible verses. They have hope now because of what God is doing through Heart for Lebanon. Your investment of $116 will help two families to get emergency supplies that they need to survive during the next 60 days. But best of all, these families will hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Call now, 888-247-5499. Here's Camille Melke, founder of Heart for Lebanon, to explain why he's encouraged right now. You could sense maybe from my voice the excitement, right? The sense of God has us here in a time and location in history that is unprecedented. This is an opportunity time, God-sized opportunity time like never before. Right now, you could see a, a wave of people in great anticipation at what God will further do in our midst in the years to come. Because I believe that the crisis in Syria is a long-term crisis, unfortunately so. But I also believe that uh, right now we are starting to reap what has been sowed for many, many years in the lives of the refugees. We are seeing churches full of Syrian refugees. We're seeing Muslims coming to Christ. We're seeing children uh, now being the greatest testimony and the best evangelists within their communities. This is the result of many years of hard work and greater, I believe, by faith, far greater results are coming in the near future. Your gift of $116 will allow Heart for Lebanon to help two families survive during the next 60 days. Call now, 888-247-5499, or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com, 888-247-5499. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Welcome back to Janet Mefford today. It is great to have you along and great to have with us Pastor Andrew Randall. His book is called Following Jesus, The Essentials of Christian Discipleship. That's what it's all about. And we were discussing, for example, the importance of God's word for us as disciples of Jesus. And you also mentioned the church. Now, this is interesting, Pastor Randall. I'm sure that you have this issue in Scotland like we do in the United States, but there does tend to be this idea that, well, I can study the Bible at home. I can get a sermon off the internet. Why do I need to be in church? What's important is my personal relationship with Jesus. Can you speak to the importance of Christians going to church and having that relationship with a body of believers as part of our discipleship? Absolutely. It's uh, just crucially important. Um, someone has said, you know, we, we, I think one of the slight weaknesses of, of evangelicalism is uh, a tendency to individualize, and that, I think, comes from our culture um, far more than it comes from the scriptures. Um, and, and so we need to very firmly ground ourselves in, in the church. Um, uh, someone has said, I think, that uh, it's not just a case of, you know, we, we as individuals are saved, um, uh, but, but what's really happening in history is that God is saving a people for himself, yes. and, and we're saved when we become part of the people that he's saving. Yeah. And so you, can't, you just cannot separate off uh, an individual's faith from their place within a church community. Um, they're part of the Church of Jesus Christ uh, across the world and throughout history, but that just that needs to find expression in uh, a local church fellowship. And there are all sorts of reasons why that needs to be needs to happen. We we we're all subject to the 
um, the errors of our own age and our own personality, our own tendencies and our own sins. And so we need to be in community with others so that those things are brought to the surface. We see them more clearly. There's, there's just far, far more of, of Christ yes. than any of us as individuals are ever going to experience. And so I'm sure any Christian who's been part of a church for any length of time would speak about maybe being part of a small group or being in conversation with another Christian. And they say something which, which maybe to them is obvious, but, uh, you know, uh, to, to, to another person, they've just never looked at it that way. And so there's a richness of, um, of, of biblical thinking um, that's brought out. And, of course, we, we need to be accountable to one another. Although, yeah. we're, although mm-hmm. we're saved, we're sinners until we die. And, uh, and so we need other people who will uh, gently and graciously and lovingly but firmly hold us to account um, so that where we start to go astray, um, we, have, we have those around us who love us who will do that. And that's, that's just looking at it from one direction, from the, if you like, the benefits that the individual gets from being part of a church. But of course, if you read the New Testament, there's also the whole issue of the responsibility that Christians have uh, towards one another. Yes. And so it's not just that, um, I'll say to a, a, a young Christian, it's not just that you need the church, it's that the church needs you. Yeah. Uh, there are brothers mm-hmm. and sisters there right. who need you to be a part of that and need you to, to commit to that and to promise we're, we're going to do this together and, and stand with one another as we seek to serve Christ. That's very good. Right, because when Scripture is referring to us as the body of Christ, we all are individual members of that body. We all have yeah. spiritual gifts that the Spirit has given to us that are for the benefit of the church. And if you're on the outside looking in, then the church is not benefiting from you being there either. So that's a really oh. good point. Yeah, well, now, when we talk about the Holy Spirit, I, you have a really good line in here in your book where you say the way you know the Holy Spirit is working in your life is by the fact that Christ is being exalted. So when we're talking about discipleship and our relationship with the Lord, you say that the whole reason we can have a relationship with God is because of the Holy Spirit. Can you talk a little bit about the work of the Trinity and specifically the third person of the Trinity in our discipleship? Yes, we're completely dependent on um, on God's Spirit to, to lead us. I think we can well, it's a hugely controversial subject, isn't it? We can go in all sorts of different different directions with that. But I think the core things that I would want to be to be bringing out are the the, the unity of the Godhead, so Father, Son, and Spirit. The fact that the the Spirit is described as the Spirit of God and is described in other places as the Spirit of Christ. So there is one one God, and there's never a division um, between the members of the Trinity. Each, each is doing the, the, the same work, albeit different aspects of the same work. Um, but, but I think that the, um, the core issue is that the, 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 the great delight of the Holy Spirit, um, I think I describe it in, in the book as, as his one great passion and goal, mm-hmm. is to glorify Christ yeah. um, by, by bringing people to worship and love and trust and obey him. Um, and so we, we want to just em- embrace that work. We want to be charismatic um, in the, the right sense of that word, um, just uh, being living, living dependent upon him, recognizing that it's the, the work of the Spirit that produces the Christian life um, within us. Um, and, and I think it's, it's part of a, a broader issue that I um, try to deal with throughout the book, which has to do with the dynamic of the Christian life. Um, one of the things in the book is that I wanted to be as as practical and down to earth as possible, 
and as specific as possible, particularly thinking about new Christians maybe coming from, don't have a Christendom background, and um, they've been newly converted, they've never really known anything about, uh, about the Christian life. And so I want it to be as practical and specific as possible. But one of the great pitfalls, of course, is that it's easy to just slide into legalism. And so at every stage I wanted to show how it was the, the, the nature of the gospel itself and the power of the Holy Spirit working in the believer that produces the, the, the kind of lifestyle that, um, that the New Testament calls the Christian to live. I, I was very keen to just to try to avoid a, a book becoming just a list of rules. This is how Christians live. Right. Obey these rules and, and you'll be fine. We've, we've fallen into that trap many times before. Um, and so that sense of it, it being a gospel-produced life and a spirit-driven life uh, was was very important to me. Oh yeah, well, I, and you have so many, you have so much good material in the book throughout the book. But one of the chapters that you have is follow, following Jesus in everything, and you talk about what change looks like. I think one of the frustrations I always have, and I think this is pretty common for a lot of Christians, is what kind of progress am I making, Lord? Because as, as soon as I make a step forward, I feel like I take three steps back. Yeah. Am I really being conformed to the image of Christ? I'm trying to follow you, Lord, best as I can, but I feel like I'm failing. What would you say to a Christian in that moment who just feels discouraged because I don't feel any more godly today than I did last week? In fact, I might feel less godly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's a very, uh, very common situation, isn't it? I've had people say to me that uh, one of the greatest challenges that they face in their Christian lives is the sense of their own lack of progress in, in godliness. Yeah. And um, it's one of those, again, it's a strange paradox, isn't it? That in, in a sense, if we think that we're uh, making wonderful progress, then, then, we're, <laughs> then we're not, are we? <laughs> right, um, right. And, and one of the things that I would want to say to people is um, to, to be careful of that, that kind of self-assessment, to be careful of looking inward too much. That there's a right reflection on our lives. Um, there's a good way to do that. But at the same time, where our focus turns inward too much, we end up too dependent on our own performance, and again, um, moving towards a kind of legalistic spirit. Yes. And we also end up, I think, too dependent on our own feelings. Um, and, and one of the things that I'm always telling um, our, our people here in the church is that we, we need to remember all the time as Christians that we don't live by what we see in front of us. We don't live by what's now. Um, but, and, and we don't live by our feelings. We live by the promises of God. And so we need to keep coming back to the Word. We need to keep um, asking God to do His work within us and taking advantage of all those means of grace. Yes. Um, and, then, and then we absolutely should um, be, doing, be doing all that we can um, uh, on, on the basis of that, that dynamic of a, of a God-dependent life. Um, to, to pursue greater holiness, and we should expect um, to, to pursue greater holiness. We, we shouldn't beat ourselves up when we still sin, because we will still sin until we die. Um, but at the same time, God makes promises to us in His Word about what He will do in us. And, and we can, I think we can sometimes get a little bit too defensive about that, when actually we need to be, we need to be looking to God and and saying you have you have promised to develop a character within me you've promised that as i live with you as your spirit indwells me certain fruit will be produced in my life right. um, and so 
uh, there's that kind of twofold process where we pursue that fruit with with all that we've got as if everything depended on us um, but at the same time our whole mindset is is driven by the, the the knowledge that actually it's the work of God within us it's it's Paul's thing about um, you know him working with all the power of God that works so powerfully within him. Amen. And so yeah. both of those things side by side. Very, very good. Well, a lot of great stuff in this book, Following Jesus by Pastor Andrew Randall, who's been kind enough to join us. And it was so good to have you here, Pastor Randall. God bless you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you for being here. And thank you for joining us here on Janet Meffer today. We will see you next time.